Well, good morning. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Restoration Road. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, turn to 2 Timothy. We are continuing through our series titled Finishing Well, a study through Paul's final writing, the last thing we have from the Apostle Paul, the letter of 2 Timothy. Already this study, we're just a few weeks in, but already this study has been richly encouraging for me, and I hope it has for you as well. Uh, Throughout this letter, Paul calls followers of Jesus to direct our affections toward the beauty of Christ and our attention to the work of Christ and engage our efforts in the mission of Christ. He's calling for all of us to engage in in Christ's work in this world. Now, our text this morning begins with the word, therefore, and that always causes us to look back and and ask why it's there, what it's there for, because Paul is developing upon an idea that he's already laid down. He's building upon what he's already said. So, as a way of recap, if you happen to miss last week's sermon, Sam preached verses 3 through 7 in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, in which Paul exhorted Timothy to remember that God is at work in him and through him, giving confidence not in Timothy's abilities and not in the abilities of the disciple to carry on the gospel work, but in Christ. His confidence is in what Christ has done in and through him. And, and, and uh, in last week's sermon, Sam gave this, this picture of discipleship. Uh, and, and the picture that comes to mind as I was listening to the sermon is, is that of a relay runner taking up the, the torch as they used to or the baton today uh, that's handed them from the previous runner as that previous runner reaches the end of their leg of the race. They reach their finish, their finish line. Scripture gives us many examples of this, many pictures of this passing on of the torch. I think of Joshua taking up the staff of leadership after Moses in Joshua chapter 1. I think of Elisha taking up Elijah's cloak to carry on the office of prophet in 2 Kings chapter 2. We think of Peter. John chapter 21 gives us this beautiful picture of Peter and Jesus where Jesus is reinstating Peter on the mission. After Peter has denied Jesus three times, Jesus asks him a very poignant question. Peter, do you love me? Three different times Peter answers, yes, I love you. And Jesus His answer to him is, then feed my sheep, shepherd my lambs, feed my sheep. And so I almost wonder if there was some sort of realization for Peter of this passing on and this mission that Jesus is giving to Peter. We see this all throughout Scripture. These are just three examples of that discipleship process, that passing on to those who come after. Though the missionary may reach the finish line of his race, the mission continues as Paul will say, until the day, capital D, day of Christ's return. So in just a few short verses that we will look at today, Paul shifts from encouraging Timothy to adopt a constant attitude of gratefulness by remembering all that was accomplished in Christ. He shifts from encouraging to exhorting that Timothy's conduct would flow from this attitude of thankfulness. It would flow out of Timothy's identity in Christ, that he would know who he is, and that from that knowledge of who God has made him to be, Timothy would engage in the mission that God has left him and brought him there for. 
Paul gives four imperatives or four commands in the seven verses that we'll look at today. And briefly, those commands are one is, is he ends with this command as kind of the overarching theme of our seven verses today, and that is guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We see that in verse 14. In that, Paul will say, do not be ashamed of the gospel message or of the messenger of the gospel. He would charge Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel. And finally, he will, he will challenge Timothy to follow the pattern of sound doctrine. These tools that Paul is, is giving to Timothy are to equip Timothy so that he would also reach the finish line of his race as Paul was nearing the end of his. It's the passing on of the flame. And Paul passing that to Timothy and encouraging Timothy to pass that on to those who would follow him. Pastor and uh, theologian uh, British pastor and theologian John Stott said this about this text, and I think it's a beautiful quote. He, he said this he's in, a, in a sermon that he gave. He said, we may see the evangelical faith, the faith of the gospel, everywhere spoken against, and the apostolic message of the New Testament ridiculed. We may have to watch an increasing apostasy in the church as our generation abandons the faith of its fathers. Do not be afraid. God will never allow the light of the gospel to, to be finally extinguished. True, he has committed it to us, frail and fallible creatures. He has placed his treasure in brittle clay pots. And we must play our part in guarding and defending the truth. Nevertheless, Stott says, nevertheless, in entrusting the deposit to our hands, he has not taken his own hands off it. This is a great mission that has been entrusted to the church, but we are not alone in this mission. As we'll see in these short verses, Paul encouraging Timothy, encouraging us as well who will read this letter to follow in the footsteps of those who have walked before us, to engage in the mission of pointing to Christ, declaring his goodness. So if you have our Bibles, we will read 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in Verse 8, Paul writes this. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through his appearing of our Savior through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words, that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Amen. So Paul first encourages and challenges, exhorts Timothy to, to not be ashamed of the gospel 
or the, the gospel message or the messenger of the gospel. He begins saying, do not be ashamed of this testimony about our Lord, the gospel message. It is one thing to declare with our words, we are not ashamed of the gospel. If you're a child of the 90s like myself, 80s and 90s, you'll remember the Newsboys song, I'm not ashamed. It's one thing to say that. It is another thing entirely to demonstrate that with our lives, with our actions, that we are not ashamed of the gospel. And so I want to put forward a few scenarios where we would be tempted to to be ashamed, to shrink away from this great flame, this great fire that we've been given in this gospel message. One out of Scripture. And it comes from a charge in us not to be ashamed of the gospel when Jesus is not who you expect him to be. There's a temptation to be ashamed when God doesn't act the way we want him to. Whether it's in our circumstances or we're looking at the world around us and we expect God to do and act in a certain way, do not be ashamed of this message that we've been given when Jesus isn't who you want him to be. Consider John the Baptist. Luke writes in Luke chapter 7 of Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah and and he lists the works the prophet had declared would be done by the messianic king. Now, a little bit of the context of this scenario. The disciples of John show up. Jesus is ministering. Luke tells us that he is healing the sick at this time that the disciples of John the Baptist show up. John the Baptist is currently sitting in prison. Why? Because he was obedient to fulfill the work that God had given him. And because he was obedient to fulfill the work God had given him, it had made enemies for those who were opposed to the work that God was doing. And so John was sitting in prison for being obedient, he sent his disciples to find out, to ask Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? Luke chapter 7, this is a scenario. This is the response that Jesus gives to John's disciples to bring back to John who's sitting in prison for being obedient to the, the call of the Lord. Jesus tells them this, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. That sounds great. That's exciting. Go tell John that. Well, just a few chapters earlier, Luke gave a story in Luke chapter 4 of, of really one of the first moments that Jesus made a clear authoritative statement. This would have happened earlier in the timeline, and it would have spread throughout the region. Likely, John would have heard of this. Luke chapter 4 talks about Jesus, an earlier time where Jesus recited the prophet Isaiah in his hometown of Nazareth, in the synagogue. Jesus sought out another portion of Isaiah's prophecy to attach to his ministry. And he made an unusually authoritative statement about what he had come to do. And this is what he read in that synagogue in Luke chapter 4. Jesus read this from the prophet Isaiah. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now again, Jesus was in the synagogue. He stood up. He read this scroll Luke says that after reading this portion from the prophet Isaiah, he sits down, 
all eyes of the synagogue are on Jesus, and he says, today, this is fulfilled before you. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus says. So what he's doing in this statement is authoritatively saying, I am the prophet that Isaiah was calling come. I am the one that Isaiah was looking toward. I will do these things. This will mark my ministry. But if you go back to Jesus' response to John, quoting the same prophet, Isaiah, about his own ministry, Jesus quotes, of, of Jesus' ministry, Jesus says, go tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them and stops there. What's missing? Freedom for the captives. Liberty for the oppressed. Now, you've got to understand that these Jewish men, they had the Old Testament memorized, many of them. They knew the prophet Isaiah much better than you and I do. They had it memorized. They knew what was missing. But you know what Jesus says after this? Instead of, go tell John that I came to bring freedom to the captives, what does he say? Jesus says, and blessed is he who is not offended by me. Go tell John, who's sitting in prison because he was obedient to God, go tell him that I am doing the works that Isaiah said I would be doing. And by the way, don't tell him that I came to bring freedom to the captives. Because that's not true for his story. Tell him rather, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Jesus is saying, when I am not, John, who you expected me to be, the military leader that would come bust you out of prison and kick these Romans out of here and set all things right. When I am not that way, John, blessed are you when you are not offended. Do not be ashamed of the gospel when Jesus does not act how you think he should. Or when you find your circumstances to be less than satisfactory in this life. Rather, rejoice that for those who hope and trust in Christ, our eternal circumstances are exceedingly greater. We find our hope not what we experience here and now. We find our hope in what is yet to come. Because of Christ, we are citizens of a different kingdom, one that has no shelf life, no end. So be not ashamed of the gospel when you suffer on behalf of Christ, a point that Paul will develop a little bit more in the text. Be not ashamed of the gospel when your perceived rights, your perceived importance, when even the words that you say are ignored and mocked by this world. Be not ashamed of the gospel in those moments. We would do well to remember Jesus' words of comfort to his disciples in John chapter 15, where he said this, John 15, 18 through 19, he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Church, follower of Christ, do not be ashamed of the gospel message. As Paul says, this message is life. 
is the power of God at work in our lives. And be not ashamed to declare it to others. Be not ashamed to allow it change who you are and what you do. But Paul also says, do not be ashamed of the messengers of the gospel, particularly of his current situation. And it's interesting to note in our text that we just read that Paul describes himself here not as a prisoner of Rome. He's sitting in a Roman prison, arrested by Roman officers, waiting to be tried by a Roman court. He does not identify himself as a prisoner of Rome, but what? As a prisoner of Christ. Nor of me, his prisoner. For Paul, the sovereign hand of God directed every one of his steps. And that brought Paul great spiritual comfort, even if it didn't bring him physical comfort. He knew whose hands his life was in. Though Paul had been abandoned by many uh, who were ashamed of Paul's imprisonment, his, he desired that Timothy would walk in the same confidence that Paul knew, that his life was secure because his life was in the hands of Christ. Paul calls Timothy not to be ashamed of Paul's temporal earthly circumstances, but to rejoice that his race is nearing the finish line, Paul's race is nearing the finish line, and that Paul would soon be with Christ. Brothers and sisters, be not ashamed of those who suffer persecution on behalf of Christ. Rather, we ought to stand with our brothers and sisters around the world. We ought to pray for them, weep with them, find joy in the eternal reward, not in temporal comfort. We pray for those who are persecuted and those who are giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul says, do not be ashamed of the gospel, the gospel message. He also says, uh, tells Timothy to share in the suffering. Share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Second half of verse 8. Now, a few things to note in this. He's not suffering for suffering's sake like those medieval mystics who would intentionally harm themselves, thinking it made them holier. It's not this self-inflicted suffering. He's not suffering because he's rude, and it's a result of him being rude. He is suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he's also not suffering in his own strength. Not for any other reason is, is it, are we to share in this suffering other than the gospel at work in us, not for any other reason and not by any other means, but through God's strength. Timothy doesn't say, or Paul doesn't say, hey, Timothy, just grit your teeth and bear it. You can make it through this. I know it's tough, but just set your sight. No, he doesn't. He says, share in the suffering for the sake of the gospel by the power of God. Lean on his strength. And then Paul gives this beautiful, concise explanation of the gospel that we read. He reminds Timothy as he calls Timothy to share in the suffering. He doesn't say if. It is assumed that suffering is coming as a, as a result of following Jesus. 
But he reminds Timothy of this beautiful gospel, this flame that he is carrying. And he said, this gospel is by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not from our works, Paul says, but by God's grace. This is his work in our lives. Paul says this is given through Christ before the ages began. It's manifested or shown or demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus, who through his work, Paul says, Jesus abolished death and brought eternal life to light. Essentially what Paul is saying here is those who are in Christ are justified, are being sanctified, and will be glorified. Three, three theological terms that we would do well to dive deeply into and to understand. But we don't have time for that today. So I'm going to give very brief explanation, kind of like the scratch and sniff version. Uh, and so hopefully it just whets your appetite to go and to study what justification is and what it means in our lives, sanctification and glorification. Justification, briefly, God saved us from the penalty of sin. This is a declarative thing that God has done. He has declared us righteous because of Christ. We are justified Sanctification is God is saving us from the power of sin. This is an active work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is working to save us from the power of sin. And our hope is in glorification that God will save us ultimately from the presence of sin. No longer will we, as Paul says in Corinthians, will we have to look at things through us through a, a stained window, through a foggy window. We will see things clearly one day. Our hope is in that Christ will complete the work that he has begun in us. And I want to take a moment just to pause here. If you are here today and you have not responded to the gospel, the good news that Christ has saved sinners, I want to take a moment to invite you to respond to that. Repentance and faith is a right response to this message that Christ has saved me from my sin, the power of sin, and will save me from the presence of sin. Romans 10, 9, Paul writes, he says that if you confess with your mouth, so there's an outward action, and you believe in your heart, there's an inward change. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ was raised, that God has raised him from the dead, Believe in your heart. He is who he says he is. Paul says you will be saved. More than our words, it will change your very identity, your purpose, and your future. And I want to encourage you and plead with you. If you have not, I don't care if you've been to church since you were about that tall. Going to church does not bring you into the kingdom of God. Responding to the gospel does. And I pray that we respond to the gospel the good news of what he has done with repentance and faith. And this is the good news that, that Christ saves sinners. And this is the message that Paul says, this is what my life is about. Paul, as he's sitting in a Roman prison, awaiting his judgment, declares this to Timothy. He says, I am not ashamed. I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced. I'm convinced, Paul says that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. 
the power of God, nor is he afraid to suffer. The beauty of Christ has captured Paul's affections. Therefore, the mission of Christ has, com- has his complete attention. Before saying this morning, well, that was, that was Paul. I mean, seriously, it's like the apostle that wrote almost half of the New Testament. That was Paul's response. I would encourage you. Uh, I would encourage you to carve out time to read biographies of those who have walked before us. I would encourage you to read missionary biographies, church, uh, biographies of church fathers, of, of martyrs of the faith. I would encourage you to, to talk to Matt Rainey after the service about what God is doing currently right now in Eswatini, Africa. I would, I would encourage you to correspond with other mission partners that we have and to watch uh, a sermon series, take a pause on your Netflix series and, and grab a series like Dispatches from the Front that, 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 that is an organization that, that finds missionaries and, and, and workers, laborers in the field right now today and over the last decade or so and shares their story and be encouraged that God is working in this world. God is working in and through those that the beauty of Christ has their affection and the mission of Christ their attention. And my prayer, Restoration Road Church, is that that we may be such people. And finally, Paul charges Timothy to follow the design of sound doctrine. After this beautiful explanation of the gospel, Paul, Paul writes to Timothy in verse 13 to follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here is know the gospel. Know it. It's interesting that Paul didn't attempt to persuade Timothy by appealing to Timothy's emotion but rather by reminding Timothy of the truths he, he knew that, Paul, that Timothy knew. And the reality is, I think of our world right now, and there's a considerable amount of damaging teaching in our world right now. Teaching, and much of that teaching does little to prepare the church for suffering. In truth, much of the teaching today does not prepare us for the kind of Christianity described here and elsewhere in Scripture. It does not call us to see and savor Christ. Rather, it directs our attention away from Christ and focuses on me, focuses on temporal things of this world. Where the world proclaims a message of, quote, be you, the Bible's countercultural declaration is beautifully demonstrated in the action of baptism, where we can see it tangibly, where the Bible says, no, no, don't be you, bury you, and be Christ. Church, the greatest blessing is not comfort for ourselves, but is glory for Christ. This is the torch that Paul says we must carry and pass on. Be that through our life or our death that Christ would be glorified. Let that be the loudest song we ever sing. 
Living a new life means following the pattern of sound words. Now, the Greek word that's used here for pattern is like an architectural drawing of a house uh, with every necessary detail explained why so the workers can begin building. The beautiful picture that Paul paints here is, Timothy, you have all that you need to run the race. And that message is true for us today, church. We have all that we need. We have the scriptures given to us in our own language. We don't have to learn another language in order to read and allow the scriptures to to change us. We have study tools available to us. So much is here. And on top of that, we have God's spirit for those who are in Christ to help us understand as we read. And so my question this morning to myself and to us here is what keeps you from regularly being in God's word? Identify it. Is it distraction? Is it temptation to to focus on other things? Is it, is it a, a lack of, of desire? All those things are, are legitimate and real things that we need to experience, identify, and then what we need to do is remove it. We need to call it for what it is. It is keeping us from equipping ourselves to be able to run the race, to be able to engage in the mission that God has for us. May we be people of the book, able to discern truth from falsity, May we stand on this sound truth that has been given us in Christ. One of my favorite quotes from uh, pastor and theologian Charles Spurgeon, uh, he said this about discernment. He said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Our challenge, church, is not to know black and white, to know right and wrong. Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. Profound. As he said this over 100 years ago. Guess what? The same lies that have been mixed with just enough truth to make it believable are still floating around in our time today and are still deceiving us and distracting us from what God has left the church here to do. So I ask again, what is it that keeps you from being in God's word? Identify it and then go to battle. Fight against that. Push against that which distracts you from being in God's word. We are searching the scriptures. We ought to be people of the book. Searching the scriptures that we may know Christ intimately. We may see him at work in our lives at work in the world around us, following the design of sound doctrine so that we may proclaim Christ accurately. Paul is saying running this race, this mission, this purpose, it's not about coming up with some new idea. It's about making sure that as we're running, the flame is still burning. I love the analogy uh, that, that, that a preacher... Uh, that I listened to gave about preaching. He said, the job of preaching, and by the way, y'all are preachers as well, not just the ones standing in, in, the, in the pulpit. We are called to proclaim the gospel to anyone who will listen. So our job in proclaiming the gospel is basically the same as a waiter. We're not to make the food. We're just 
got to get it to the table without spilling it. That's our job. It's kind of like telling somebody about the Grand Canyon. It's best just to bring them to the side of it and say, this is the Grand Canyon, and let that, let that do its work. And so Paul finishes with this, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to us. That good deposit is the gospel. Guard the gospel entrusted to you, he tells Timothy and tells us as well as followers to follow that same path. Now, the, word, the, the Greek word that's used here for guard is a defensive military term. Notice it's not an offensive term. Paul doesn't say, go and tackle everyone who's opposing the gospel. Go and throw down with anyone, anything that is, no, he says guard, set a guard. This, this word can also be translated as keep watch, setting a guard over those things that bring an attack to the purity of the gospel. Now, those are setting a guard from external attack and internal attack on the purity of the gospel. The setting a guard against our own false presuppositions, those things that we have from growing up, those misunderstandings that we have from our culture, that as we read this, we think, well, that's not very American. We need, we need to get rid of this cultural lens that, 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 that we filter Scripture through sometimes. And that takes work. That takes studying. And thank the Lord that we don't have to do that alone. It'd be, we'd be in trouble if we did. But God gives us the context of community to learn and grow together in the church. So it's from an internal attack on the purity of the gospel and external attacks on the purity of the gospel. Those things that bring misunderstanding, certainly the false teaching. Guarding the gospel, it's, it's this, it's making clear the truths of the gospel, make straight the path to the cross of Christ. One of my biggest criticisms of theologians is when they throw mud in the water. In their intellectualism, when they do not make clear the truths of Scripture, that is my biggest criticism when, when in, intellectual theologians do that, it bugs me because a job of a theologian is to take deep truths and make them clear, to make them understandable. Our job as we proclaim the gospel is to make clear the truths of Christ and to make straight the path to the cross of Christ. And again, I'll quote Spurgeon. Uh, I love this. In, in, in a sermon he gave titled Christ and His Co-workers, back in 1886, he preached this sermon where he said this. On the same topic of defending the gospel, he said, suppose, quote, suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I would suggest to them, if they would not object and feel it, it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. I believe that it would be, best, it would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. The best apology or defense for the gospel, Spurgeon says, is to let the gospel out. We need to declare it. 
What part do we play in defending the gospel? We need to know God's word rightly. And it requires knowing God's word rightly requires one to be in God's word consistently. Read it. Read it. Read it. Be in God's word. Know it. Let it remake you. Let it shape you and trust that the ultimate guardian of God's word is God himself. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Do not be ashamed of the gospel message or of the messenger of the gospel. Share in suffering for the gospel and follow the pattern of sound doctrine. May we be people who build our lives upon the solid foundation of Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, we come before you humbly because we are fallible. We are broken. We are in need of a Savior. We are easily led astray. We are in need of your truth at work in our lives. So Jesus, we ask that you would work in us. God, that you would, you would be the strength that we need to run this race, that we would run it through your grace, the help of your spirit, that we would guard this good deposit that you, would, you have given to us, you have entrusted to us, that we would not take this light as Jesus warned and hide it under a bushel, under a basket. But God, help us to take the light of the gospel and place it on a lampstand so that it sheds light all around. God, I confess we need your strength. We need your boldness in our lives. God, the time may be coming where it may take more courage even than now to stand up. And, and Lord, certainly our brothers and sisters around the world, it takes immense courage to stand and so, God, I pray that you would strengthen your church, that you would strengthen us to follow you, that we would not seek our own comfort, but above everything, we would seek your glory, Jesus. We pray these things in your name, your authority. Amen.